So this morning, we are in the middle of a series on rediscovering church. Actually, we're coming kind of down the home straight of that series now. And uh, we've spent kind of last week and this week looking at what some people refer to as the sacraments of the church or the ordinances of the church. Two things, baptism and communion. And so today we're talking about communion. And as a way into that, I want to ask you a question, or at least get you thinking about this. When was the last time that you got a really, really good telling off? Like a really good tell, like someone just really went for it, you know, and, and absolutely bawled you out. I know for me, thinking about this, I think the worst telling off that I ever got was back, I used to work in a public relations agency, and we would often be sending out media releases to news organizations and other organizations and so on, and we'd send them so far and wide that we'd program into our fax machine different lists of uh, recipients. So you could just hit fax number 01, and it would go to like 10 different places, just like that. You didn't have to punch in each number. One day, I was sending out this, this document, and in a moment of insanity, I pressed the fax number for every single school in New Zealand. $2,000 just for that fax bill alone, just to send that one document. And I remember my director absolutely bawled me out. Like, he just did not hold back any punches. He just completely took me to task and ripped me to shreds in front of everybody. And I like to think that that was a formative experience. And the man that you see before you today, I don't know whether that's true or not. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. At, at times in our lives, each one of us have experienced some kind of telling off. And there's something, I think, kind of macabre about us that likes listening in on other people's telling offs. You know, have you found that? It's kind of like you just keep an ear out, you know, if someone's getting told off, oh, I kind of want to be in on that and know what's going on there. And so we get to sort of satisfy this desire today by reading a passage where this happens in the Scriptures. And we see Paul basically just ripping into uh, this church in Corinth that he's writing a letter to. 1 Corinthians 11 is the chapter that we're in. If you have a Bible, it's going to be uh, helpful if you can follow along. We'll have the words on the screen, but if you've got the page in front of you, uh, that would be great as well. So he's really uh, letting loose here. Let's pick it up in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Just imagine if Paul was saying this to you today. How would you feel? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So here is Paul really getting quite heated, uh, really getting quite worked up over this issue. And it seems, as you listen to it, it seems maybe quite strange to try and reconstruct the situation that's going on here. It's like, does this mean that there are some people in this church that when communion time came around, they were running out the back and gorging themselves on the wafers and on the, on the wine and not letting anybody else have any? Like, why would you do that? It's not even that tasty, you know? <laughs> it's, not, it's not the tastiest meal in town. Let's just be straight up about it. I mean, communion, those little wafers, that little cup. Actually, Bryce Stavely confided into me that he, he, he dips the wafer in the cup. <laughs> Try and make it a little bit tastier, you know? It's a tip. If you're looking for a way, I don't know why they're so kind of bland, but maybe that's, it takes more sacrifice to really uh, get into the spirit of what's going on. 
But the problem is, we, we come to this passage, we tend to read our own modern notions of communion and what communion is back into the text here. And you've got to get back into the first century world and figure out what's happening. In the first century, unlike today, Christians would generally meet in private homes. So you're not going to have 300 people getting together like we do on Sunday morning, even in two different services. You're going to have little clusters of maybe 10, 20, 30 people, depending on the size of the house. And so a church, say the church in Corinth that we're looking at this morning, uh, you might have 10 to 15 to 20 maybe of these little house churches, these little cell churches dotted around the city, all of whom would be meeting probably uh, more or less at the same time. And in these house churches, basically what you want to try and do is meet in the biggest house you can so that you can fit the most people in you can. And the bigger houses are going to be owned by who? The richer people, right? So you're going to try and wait until someone with a lot of money, someone from the, the upper classes, gets converted, and then you're going to start meeting in their house because they've got a bigger property. The average house in a city like Corinth is only going to fit about 10 to 15 people max. You get a nice wealthy house, you can start to get 20, maybe even 30, you start spreading out into some of these other rooms. And so generally it would be the houses of the wealthy members of the church in which Christians would meet. And the way communion worked is not a, a sort of standalone ceremony in the way that we do it today. It was part of an actual meal that people would take. So you would have a, a kind of uh, probably some teaching, you'd have some worship, and at some point you would actually share a meal together, like a proper full-on meal. And as part of that sharing a meal, there would be the ceremony of breaking bread and taking a, a flask of wine and distributing this, and that would become the Lord's Supper. That would become the ceremony of communion. So it was all in the context of a common meal. Now, the problem is, you get a place like Corinth, or really more broadly just across the whole Roman Empire at this time, you're dealing with a very, very class-structured sort of society, the Greco-Roman world. If you can imagine a ladder with just all these different rungs from bottom to top, each representing a certain class status that people occupy based on socioeconomic uh, level, based on the amount of honor you have in the, in the eyes of other people, based on your educational and athletic uh, achievements, based on your oratory abilities. Greek philosophy was very big on your ability to use rhetoric and these sorts of ideas. And so you would know exactly where you, so where you sat on this ladder and that would be your place. And you'd spend your life maybe trying to inch up a rung or two, but this is basically your lot in life. So people on this rung are only going to do business with people on this rung. They're only going to eat with people on this rung. They're only generally going to associate with people on the same rung as me because you don't want to start dipping down and mixing with these people below you because that's going to drag your class status down and then you're in trouble. Bring all of this into the church. It's going to create a problem in Corinth. And you probably already start to see what's happening here. You have these rich people who have been converted and now follow Christ, having come out of probably Greek paganism or something like this, and they're willing to open the doors of their house to the members of the church, but what they're not willing to do is display the kind of unity where they sit around a table and have a meal with anyone else regardless of what rung in the ladder they occupy. So you end up with a bunch of rich people who would meet together before everybody else. They come in. In the main dining room, you could probably sit maybe 9 to 12 people, and they would have this lavish supper all provided, and they would share in communion together. And later on, the, the, the lower status people, the poor, the, the marginalized, slaves, of which there were many. In Corinth, the makeup of the church was much more heavily weighted towards the lower socioeconomic levels. These people would arrive later. 
They would meet separately, probably out in the atrium or somewhere where you can get 20 or 30 people in. It's not the dining room, it's just this kind of big area where you can shepherd them all in like sheep, and then they're gonna have their own meal in their own time with whatever happens to be left. So this is what's going on, and Paul walks into this situation, and clearly he's not happy about it. There is something here that is fundamentally at odds with the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. But like he so often does, Paul steps back and before sort of giving these directives of exactly what needs to happen here, he just kind of rewinds the tape a bit and goes right back to the basics, right back to the theological foundations of what is happening here. What, is, what are we actually doing in this meal when we come together and share it? What does it mean? And this is what he does here in verse 23. Check it out. He says, For I received from the Lord what also I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So really what Paul's doing here is he's... he's going back to a story that happened well before his time, a story that took place on the night that Jesus himself was betrayed. And this story actually ends up in our Gospels, and you can read it in a couple of the Gospels, that Paul is reciting a tradition that came down to him and that he's passing on to others, and this is a fascinating insight into the way that our Bible was put together. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he has this supper with a few of his closest disciples, the 12 disciples, this is before he goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's handed over and then he'd be crucified the very next day. He has this meal together, and then after supper, he takes this bread. But before breaking the bread, he does something. He gives thanks. And this is easily overlooked in the story of the communion, but this is, I think, a very significant point, that Jesus, before doing anything, gives thanks. And that word for given thanks is the Greek word eucharisteo from where we get the English word Eucharist. And this is why one of the names for communion, especially in Catholic circles, is the Eucharist. We generally refer to it more as communion or as the Lord's Supper. But the idea of the Eucharist is that this whole event is supposed to be a thanksgiving event to God. And Jesus, by giving thanks before he takes the bread and by distributing the wine, by giving thanks to God, places the whole thing in a context of thanksgiving, makes the whole thing a thanksgiving offering. So he takes the bread, he thanks God, has this Eucharist to God, and then he says to them, this, taking the bread, this is my body, and taking the cup, saying, this is my blood. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters at this point will tell us that what Jesus means here is that this bread or this wine actually becomes my body. This cup actually becomes my blood like physically becomes those elements when we take it. This is, if you're looking for a big word to throw around at parties, by the way, this is transubstantiation, all right? So when conversations at a lull over Sunday lunch, you know, just pull that one out. You know, what, what do you think about transubstantiation? Yeah. It's gonna get a few uh, comments. You'll look smart. That's the main thing. That's what we're all about here, is just making you look smart, you know? So this is the idea that, that um, this, is my, this is my body, this is my blood, now, I think this idea of the, the elements miraculously transforming into the actual body and blood of Jesus is really reading Jesus' words a little bit too literally here. I think Jesus was being figurative. I think he was being metaphorical and saying this bread represents 
my body, this cup represents my blood. So as good Protestants, we don't actually believe that the bread miraculously becomes the body. Although we do believe that somehow the cup miraculously, the wine miraculously becomes grape juice. Have you noticed that? There's something that happens out in the kitchen there. <laughs> it's miraculous transformation. Suddenly we're drinking grape juice. Man, that's amazing. So this is the idea that this is my body and blood represents Jesus' body, represents Jesus' blood, represents the sacrifice that he made whereby his body was, was handed over. It was brutally tortured and flogged and beaten and eventually killed. That his blood was poured out and spilled, not just for any old reason, but for us, for you. And for me, for our benefit, that Jesus laid down his life that we might have life. Jesus faced death that we could live. He became bound and tortured and executed so that we could be released, so that we could have freedom. This is the heart of the gospel right here. And this is the heart of the Eucharist. This is what it means, is this idea of absolute self-giving. That Jesus just flagrantly abandoned any preoccupation he might have with his own status, with his own title, with his own rank, with his own privilege, and he laid his life down for others, for you, for me, for us. That Jesus gave himself for those not only who would follow him, but even for those who would spit in his face and abuse him and reject him. That Jesus just demonstrated this absolute emptying of himself. And Paul describes it in Philippians 2 as Christ pouring himself out, emptying of himself and making himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant and becoming obedient even to death, even death on a cross. That he would just lower himself to the very, very lowest point. This is what the Eucharist is about, is the self-emptying of Christ, this absolute self-giving. We don't just simply remember the static idea of Christ's body and Christ's blood. We remember his activity, his actions on the cross and through his entire passion where he laid his life down, gave himself up, allowed his body to be broken and his blood spilled for us. And this is what this ceremony is all about. And Jesus then turns to us and says, now I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Now what does that mean? to do this in remembrance of me. Well, part of it, obviously, is that we would remember what Christ has done for us. And that's usually what preoccupies our minds during the time of communion, that we allow our minds to be drawn back to that time when Jesus went through all that he went through, and we're thankful, and we're grateful. And that's certainly part of it. The problem I have with leaving it there is that I don't doubt the Corinthians were doing that. I don't doubt that when these rich believers got together, they were thankful. I don't doubt that they expressed their gratitude. I don't doubt that they remembered Christ, that they did this in remembrance of Him. What's the problem, though, in Corinth? The problem is that's as far as it went for them. The problem is they would eat and they would drink and they would remember and they would be grateful and they would be thankful, but it would mean nothing to their lives when they walked home and it would mean nothing to the way they treated their brothers and sisters, that they would remember Christ with their minds but they were not remembering him with their lives. And I just wonder if part of what Paul is getting at here and part of what even Jesus himself meant on the night that he was betrayed is that we would remember him not just with our minds, but with the way that we treat each other. That we would somehow be a living remembrance of Christ. Just as he didn't just give the bread and give the cup and leave it at that, he became like a living Eucharist for us. I think his intention is that we might become a living Eucharist 
one for another. That we would remember Christ in the way that we conduct ourselves. That our remembrance would involve our behavior and our actions toward one another. Flick over just for a second to Colossians 2. I think it sheds some light on what's happening here. This is Paul writing at a much later stage in his ministry. See if you can pick up the image that he's using. Colossians 2 verse 6. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and listen to this, overflowing with thankfulness. That word thankfulness, you know what that word is? Eucharistia. There it is again. And I'm convinced the picture that Paul has in mind here is of the believer as a living communion cup. A living Eucharist. A living expression of thanksgiving with God that affects not just how we think and even what's going on in our heart, but that we would be overflowing with thankfulness in such a way that it affects how we treat one another. That we would become living Eucharists and embody that same spirit that Christ had of giving himself up for others, that that would come to characterize our lives too. That we would remember Christ through a willingness on our behalf to pour ourselves out for our brothers and sisters, to lay ourselves down, to sacrifice our interests, sacrifice our rights, not to stand on our own status, whether it's an intellectual status, whether it's an educational status, whether it's a personality thing, but to allow ourselves to be broken for each other. What does that look like for you? To allow ourselves to be poured out, just as Christ was poured out for us. What does that mean for the way we treat people that might be different to us? What does that mean for the way we treat people that might be difficult people in our lives, just as these Corinthians in, in, encountered that same challenge as they struggled to break through these class barriers? What does being a living Eucharist mean for that person who, who maybe sits uh, in the same auditorium as you even now, and yet they just grate on your nerves? That person who annoys you. That person who you just find really needy. That person right now with whom you're engaged in some sort of relational conflict. That you have a fractured relationship or friendship with them this morning. And you know that things aren't as they should be, even as you sit here this morning. What does it mean for you to be a living Eucharist towards that person? Not only remembering Christ at the Lord's table, but remembering Him with your life towards them. What does it mean to be poured out, to lay down our agendas, to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced for each other? To allow ourselves to be put out from time to time when there are needs that come, when there are relational uh, conflicts that need to be dealt with, when reconciliation needs to happen, but it's been left for so long. What does it mean for you to embody that same attitude of Christ who made himself nothing for the other person? Can you start to see why Paul's getting so worked up here? Why this is just absolutely getting under his collar? That you could have a church in Corinth that uses this very meal of the Lord's Supper, a meal that speaks to the equality of the body of Christ, that speaks to the self-giving that its members should have one for another, that they could use this meal to reinforce their own class differences, to create and establish boundaries and walls and divisions one against the other. This is something that Paul just can't handle. This is something that he finds absolutely intolerable. And so he proceeds to lay out this list of, of directives to try and give them a solution to what's happening here. And this is the final paragraph back in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, So then, 
Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Those who are hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. I think the key verse here is verse 29, if you have that in front of you. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That word discerning, it means to recognize, to acknowledge, to be aware of. Often when we interpret this verse, we think that Paul's talking about the physical body of Christ there. And I want to suggest to you that his uh, mind is being drawn not to the physical body of Christ, but to the body of Christ, which is the church. And the, what he is saying is when you eat this cup, when you eat this bread, when you drink this cup, it is imperative that you recognize the unity that exists and the equality that exists within this body, within this family. That the brothers and sisters who meet around this table with you have just as much right to participate in it as you do. And that that attitude of the Eucharist should pervade this ceremony and it should not be an opportunity for us to divide ourselves or set ourselves over one another. How does that affect the way that you deal right now with those people that you are struggling with? How does that affect the way you deal with people that are different to you? People who may think differently to you, even in this family here. People who may just hold different opinions to yours, and that, that just grates on you. People who may be different in personality. You know, there are some people that it's just hard to be around. It's just you feel like when you're there, it's just a difficult time. People you may feel who have hurt you in the past. What does it mean to recognize the body of Christ in regard to those people. It means to take on to ourselves that attitude of Christ Jesus and lay our lives down for each other. It means to be the ones who are prepared to initiate that reconciliation, the ones who are prepared to go to those people who have hurt us and begin to mend those barriers. It means to be the person who's prepared to tear down that wall that might stand this morning between you and even someone else in this congregation. It means even more broadly as we go from here in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, in our schools, on our sports teams, in our different interest groups that we're involved in. What does it mean for us to be a living Eucharist in the world? to be prepared to meet the needs of those around us with no regard or concern for our own interests and what we might get in return, to be prepared to look for practical ways of meeting the needs of people that you work with, of being a servant, placing ourselves not over them but under them, of going to people that have hurt us and beginning that process of reconciliation, of bringing ourselves to a point, and perhaps this is where you're at this morning, of forgiving someone who has wronged you in the past. See, this is a much broader discussion than just how we take communion. This is a much bigger issue that Paul's dealing with here than just what's going to happen when you drink and what's going to happen when you eat. What he's, what he's saying is what's going to happen when you live. What's going to happen when you go home? What's going to happen to the way that you do church? Because if you come to this table and you remember Christ and you express this gratitude and you have a thankful heart and yet you are not prepared to be a living 
Eucharist to those around you and to those in your sphere of influence, what Paul would tell you here is that you are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And this is where the Corinthians were, which is why God has, has caused some pretty dramatic things to happen in this church, whereby Paul says, this is why some of you are weak. This is why some of you are sick. This is even why some of you have fallen asleep, by which he's not talking about the kind of sleep that you do during my sermons. He's talking about death. Now, there's a whole lot of questions that this raises that we don't have time to get into, but what this suggests to us, doesn't it, if we're just reading faithfully the Scriptures, is this situation was so serious. God had actually intervened to such a degree He was bringing physical judgment against this congregation. Now, isn't that a bit heavy-handed of God? I mean, isn't that a bit over the top? We just, it's just communion. It's just the Lord's, I mean, it's just a little bit of, it's a wafer and it's a cup. Why would God, God is actually bringing physical death into a community of believers over this? But this is the thing, friends, it's not just communion. It's not just a table, it's not just food and drink, it's the way in which we live. And God is so concerned that He's willing to discipline them to this level because what they are doing is violating the very, the very attitude behind the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul steps back and says, guys, here's the solution to this. Two words, examine yourselves. Right? That's what it comes down to. Examine yourselves before you take the cup, before you take the bread. Now, even here, in our minds, when you hear that, examine yourselves, what do you think? See, usually, in the modern Western church, what we think is a very individual, introspective process of examination. And when you think about it, I mean, consider the way that we do communion in church. It actually becomes almost the most individualistic part of our service. That we almost use that opportunity more than any other to, act, to cut ourselves off and enclose ourselves in this little mental space where we have our, our, our cup and we have our wafer and we sort of shut off everything that's going on around us and it's just me and it's just God and there's this sweet sound and this beautiful time of just having intimate fellowship with God and we, and we think that that is examining ourselves. And I would argue to you that the type of examination that Paul is talking about here is not where you just have this introspective time of thinking about you and God. It's an examination of where you're at with other people. It's an examination of where you stand with your brothers and sisters in Christ and how much you are becoming a living Eucharist. In the context of this argument, where Paul's whole thrust is on relationships within the body of Christ and the unity that must characterize our common life, I can't imagine him meaning any other than this self-examination is to think about people that you know right now with whom you have a fractured or broken or strained relationship and you think about what you're going to do in that situation. And you resolve to take those steps before you engage in eating and drinking this meal. See, we've individualized, I think, this ceremony to such a degree. We even have now the little uh, individual cups, you know, and the little individual wafers. Now, I know that there are, there are good reasons for this. I'd thought about this morning maybe trying to go back to the old... Anyone remember the one loaf days? And the one, you know, whatever it was, flask or cup or so on, and uh, you'd pass, everyone gets their grubby hands in there, you know, who knows where those hands have been, and you'd pass around the cup and everyone's just taking a good old swig, the guy at the end just gets all the backwash or something, I don't know, <laughs> it's just, you know, oh man. It, in fact, I was talking with Anna about this this week, and she, was, she remembers at her old church, they used to pass around the one cup of wine, uh, or of grape juice, Ribena, whatever it was, and... Uh, 
this became, you know, the hygiene issues became such that the church took the bold and innovative step of introducing the napkin. <laughs> and then you can wipe off the lipstick, you know, of the person who's just had it. And we kind of look at those practices now and we think, yeah, we've got to be careful. Uh, there are some hygiene issues that we've got to respect. But my fear is that in going back to this uh, individual cup and individual wafer idea, that we've actually, it actually sends a quite a subversive message about what communion's all about, doesn't it? It actually speaks toward an individualism of the ceremony rather than a communal act, which it really was in the New Testament. It was very much a body act. This was not just a time for you to be alone with God. This was a time for you to think about your brothers and sisters, to be very aware of your relationships uh, within the church. So even though we take this uh, individual cup and we take this wafer, this process of examination, and this is one we're going to go through in just a couple of minutes, today I really want to encourage you to make this a time when you think about people with whom you, you need to make things right this morning. Maybe a person that you have just avoided for a long time. Now you have to avoid them at morning tea because you just, it's just tough to, to even converse with them. It's tough to even be in the same room. Maybe someone that you go to a different service because I just can't really be in the same room as this person. You know? And friends, let's just, let's just get, get really, really honest. And maybe this isn't something for the TV cameras. We can edit this out. But let's just, look, you know, I've been, I've been back here for a few weeks now. Could we just take our masks off and just be real about this? You know, we need to start loving each other here. You know, when I hear stories about people that don't want to serve on the same ministry team as other people, this kind of thing, you know, the, the words of James come to mind where he said, my brothers, this should not be so. Not in the church. Not at this table. Not among the people of God. Now, we are human, fallen, frail creatures, and we struggle, and relationships are hard work, I know. But let's vow today that we are going to take whatever steps. And I challenge myself as much as I, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you this morning. Please know that. Please see my heart. But let's covenant together as we take these emblems that we're going to do whatever it takes to get right with our brother and sister. Because it doesn't, it's not just you and it's not just that person. It's the whole church that's jeopardized when, when this kind of stuff festers among our life. You know, Paul said, a little bit of yeast leavens the whole mold of dough. And this is what, because these things are poison. And maybe there's just been a relational rift that's festered for so long. Maybe there's just been bitterness. Maybe it's just an attitude this morning toward another brother or sister here of, of, of bitterness. Maybe of judgment and just a cynical heart whereby they really, in your mind, can't do anything right. And perhaps before the Lord, this self-examination process this morning is one of bringing that brother or sister to the Lord and saying, Father, forgive me for the way that I've just thought about them, even if it hasn't overflowed into my actions yet. Forgive me for harboring the wrong kind of spirit towards this person. Help me to become a living Eucharist, a living expression of thanksgiving to God, whereby I am prepared to pour myself out and lay myself down, whatever it takes, because I value the sacrifice Christ made for me enough that I want my life to be a living communion cup that expresses that same attitude that he had towards me. That's the spirit in which Paul wants us to, to share in this meal together. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to undertake this, this ceremony together. And here's the way that it's going to work, a little bit different this morning. In just a minute, I'm going to ask those who are handing out communion to come forward. And I'm, they're going to distribute the elements and we're going to have this wafer and we're going to have this cup. But I want to ask you that when you receive it, don't take it straight away, even if you're hungry. <laughs> don't, uh, don't, don't consume the wafer or drink the cup right now. Just hold those elements 
And we're going to go through exactly this process that 1 Corinthians 11 outlines of examining ourselves to see if we are right with one another, to recognize the body of Christ. And while that's happening, Bruce is going to come and sing a song. And when that's finished, I'm going to come back up and lead us in a time of taking these emblems together. Not because that's particularly spiritual, but because it's a, a sign of our unity as a church that there is one loaf, even if not physically, there is one loaf and there is only one cup and there is only one church and we're all in it together and we've got to start looking out for each other and loving each other.